is sending typhoons to South Korea. What will Kim Jong-un make of that? Who's winning the war of words over Syria, Moscow or Washington? What's the big idea which will shape the future of the British army? And are British-made weapons being used by Saudi Arabia to bomb civilian targets in Yemen? The RAF is sending eight typhoons to train with fighter jets in South Korea and Japan. The deployment is part of Exercise Eastern Venture, a tour of the Middle East and Asia. BFBS reporter Carla Prater joins me now. Hello, Carla. This seems unusual. Where are they going and what are they going to be doing? Well, Exercise Eastern Venture will see the whole of two squadron based at RAF Lossiemouth deploy to Malaysia, Japan and the Republic of Korea. A trip which will include about 150 personnel and eight Typhoon fast jets supported by the Voyager air-to-air refueler, the C-17 and the C-130. The reason for going is to conduct joint training. They'll be exercising in Japan. It'll be the first time typhoons have deployed there before, alongside Japan's F-2 aircraft, something they're very excited to do for the first time. And then they'll be flying to the Republic of Korea to take part in Exercise Invincible Shield, which will see the UK training alongside the South Korean Air Force and the US in joint military drills. Mm, interesting deployment. Is the Chief of the Air Staff at, at all concerned that this deployment of British warplanes to Japan South Korea will be seen as provocative by North Korea? Well, this deployment to the region does come at a time of increased tensions, you could say. North Korea's recent, recent nuclear test early in September was one of its largest so far. So this exercise is certainly going to be noticed in Pyongyang. The Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier, told me their trip is not aiming to be provocative, but it's about showing commitment to the UK's allies. We have important allies and partners in that part of the world. Um, we have important UK interests. What we are aiming to do is to reinforce our international partnerships, is to demonstrate the RAS capability to deploy far away to the Asia-Pacific region, uh, and also to uh, reinforce that message to the UK as a whole, is that we're you know, confident and inter serious international player and we're out there in uh, the world. Well, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is also here. Uh, Christopher, is it as simple as that then? Um, never is, is it? But yes, in as much that this is long-term planning. Uh, you don't just... Two years or so? A couple of years, certainly. But there's certainly 18 months into the parallel planning that it has to go on with, let's say, Japan, South, uh, South Korea and the United States and don't forget Australia people like that all joining in. This is a big exercise, big exercise planning. The other part of which is very important, um, I think any very important, is, is the exercise of actually getting these sort of aeroplanes to the Far East, that huge distance. That in itself, just supposing you had to go into some sort of operation there, how would you get people to uh, an area of operation? This mm -hmm. is part of it. And so you've got stopovers, you've got, most importantly, at a time when you want to convince the government to pay for more air-to-air -air refuelling aircraft, you've got the air-to-air -air refuelling operation that it takes to actually get mm. airplanes that far. What about North Korea? Do you think they will be provoked by this? Uh, I no. don't think it would be provoked at all. Um, I mean, he will say, well, what do you expect? The, the, the thing that will provoke him is that uh, you've got America in exercise with South Korea and with Japan to some extent because he believes, and I think a lot of other people understand it, he believes that the more he, he, he pumps up his ideas of having a fully-fledged nuclear weapon force, 
then the new system in Japan with a new defense minister, a new defense organized uh, a sort of uh, commercial and military uh, cohort, they are going to say, we may have to have nuclear weapons. The idea of Japan having mm-hmm. nuclear weapons. Now, that is something which this... Is, is, is insignificant. All right, Carla Prater, um, the Red Arrows are going to be going to the region as well. What are they going to be doing? How are they involved? Well, yes, it's important to realise this typhoon training is just one part of Exercise Eastern Venture. The Red Arrows are also visiting the region. Their trip is their largest tour for more than 10 years, taking, in, taking the team to 14 different countries, starting off with a fly past in Jordan, heading to Pakistan, India and many more. They'll be visiting China also for the first time and are planning up to 10 shows there. The visit, as Christopher said there, is something that's been planned for the past 18 months and it's to help the UK's relationship building efforts in the region post-Brexit. It's certainly an important visit. The Reds quite literally will be flying the flag for Britain there. They'll clock up some 13,000 miles in the sky and carry out about 45 sorties having, of course, to refuel roughly every hour and a half after flying. So it's an immense trip for them. Their team leader, squadron leader David Montenegro, says it's very exciting for the whole team. Really, really looking forward to it because the opportunity is incredible for us to go and take the Red Arrows around the world. It's nothing, nothing new for the team. It's been doing it for over 50 years, but uh, something in this scale hasn't been done for 10 years. So I think knowing that responsibility uh, is um, it's very exciting. So, Christopher, what do you make of all of this? I think it's brilliant. I mean, you, you, you keep these aircraft flying, and it's not simply um, it's not simply a sort of military. Uh, function. If you go to, around the United Kingdom, Eastbourne, Brighton, places like this, public therefore get behind the idea of paying for defence, and this is what Red Arrows do probably better than anything else. But it's a, it's a nice piece of irony. The the month before Red Arrows uh, get get into the Far East, the Italian version of the Red Arrows will hmm. be doing exactly the same thing. Christopher, stay with us. Carla Prater, thank you. America has told Russia it will end Syria talks unless Moscow stops the bombing of Aleppo. Russia has hit back, denouncing Secretary of State John Kerry's words as a policy of threats and blackmail, accusing the US in turn of de facto support for terrorists. Well, Mary Dijewski is a writer for The Independent and joins us now. Good to speak to you today, Mary. When it's a war of words, doesn't this mean they've really run out of ideas? Um, well, on the one hand, it does, but on the other hand, um, it's quite good if, if if you look at it as saying, well, they are actually warring only in words rather than in anything else. Um, and of course, there have been very tense situations both on the ground and in the air in Syria recently. So, um, shouting at each other across the uh, across the global airwaves is probably not the worst thing that could happen. Mm, how how seriously should the shouting be taken? Well, I think there's a lot on both sides of playing to the home audience. Um, We saw that at the UN General Assembly last week. Um, I think we've seen it since, that um, if you consider that America is in an election year, um, the Democrats are fighting to to keep the presidency. Um, One of the charges that's been levelled against President Obama is of showing weakness, um, American weakness, and especially in Syria. Um, The Americans really have to, at this sort of campaigning time, um, I think the administration has to sound tough um, in a way to compromise for the fact that it's not being very tough on the ground. 
Um, and of course, when we go across to Moscow, um, then we have President Putin, who's just emerged um, victorious from parliamentary elections, um, but an economy that's not doing terribly well, and Russians who are maybe starting to feel the pinch for the first time really since the end of the Soviet mm. Union. So, you know, all these things go together. Um, and I think the importance of the domestic audience um, shouldn't be underestimated. In terms of the evidence on the ground in Syria, doesn't it boil down to the fact, though, that Russia doesn't want to stop the war, America can't stop it? Um, I think there's a lot of truth in that. But I think that um, one of the tragedies um, about everything that's going on at the moment is that it came so close to what looked like, you know, the ceasefire, the pause in hostilities that there really has to, that has to come at some point. And you say it came so close. Did you believe in it when that ceasefire, that partial truce happened? Well, I mean, it, I, I think it worked. I mean, for the first, for, for the first three days, um, it was quite remarkable to my mind, the fact that, uh, that, that, that hostilities really did quieten down. You know, these things take time to take, you'll know better than I do, these things take time to take hold. You can't expect, you know, on the stroke of midnight, everything stops in those sort of circumstances where, you know, communications are not wonderful for a start. Mm. Um, but I think that there was a real chance and I think that what um, what maybe we've neglected um, in the West is the fury that there was on Syria's side, maybe slightly less on the Russian side, but on Syria's side, when the Americans and the uh, and the British, you know, as they say, made a mistake um, in bombing Syrian forces, and. You know, we are now emphasising the attack on the aid convoy and talking about a war crime and um, Russian-sponsored or Syrian-sponsored aggression, all those sort of things, and blaming that for breaking the ceasefire. Mm. But if you look at it from Moscow's perspective and from the perspective of Damascus, then it's not the attack on the aid convoy, whoever is responsible. It was the attack on the Syrian forces. And the story that, you know, the, 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 the American version, the apology and the admission of a mistake, you know, that is not rated either in Moscow or in Damascus. They don't see it. I like suppose that. the problem is really when you've got this war, so-called war of words, it's very difficult to establish the truth in any situation. No, absolutely. And I think one of the problems is, you know, the truth currently, you know, as in Ukraine, so in Syria, the truth looks very different from both sides. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily that um, each side is sort of spinning and distorting and lying. It is that either side actually believes something different and starts out with a view which is so different. Yes. I mean, Mary... Mary, you mentioned uh, Ukraine and the findings of this investigation, which has concluded that the missile which brought down a Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 had been uh, driven in from Russia. Russia, Russia has dismissed this report, um, but surely it's pretty unrefutable, isn't it? Well, oh, it's so this story is so complicated. Um, Yes, I mean I think that the, um, the, the 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 latest Dutch report, which I think is is the the second part of its report, um, it has added some detail, but it hasn't really changed the um, the, the facts as they were understood from the first report, which is that there was a missile launcher which came across from from Russian territory into Ukraine. It fired a missile and it was trundled back 
into Russia. Now, I think that, that, that there, are, there are some things which are sort of lost sight of a little bit like in what? saying that. Because if you say, well, it came in from Russia, then it sounds as though, um, or it's open to the interpretation that the order came down from the Kremlin or from the um, for, 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 from the top of the armed forces that this that this particular piece of equipment was to, was to be taken into Ukraine, that it was to be used, and then it was to take it and be taken out again. Um, That's a suggestion, but nobody's actually said that, exactly. have they? Exactly. No, but that 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 is the impression I think, which is left very strongly in people's minds. Conveniently so. You and I, I mean, I, I, I would argue several things. Firstly, that um, I mean, it's, it's often presented here as though Putin was sort of sitting in the Kremlin, ordering a civilian airliner to be brought down over a contested area of Ukraine. Um, I think that that is just simply makes no sense. Nobody would do that. Um, second of all, the confusion on the ground and the fact that the, the Ukrainian-Russian border in that area is not properly demarcated. Um, the, the closest analogy, really, is between um, Northern Ireland and the Republic and the way that border operated during the Troubles. Um, the Russia-Ukraine border and the border between the rebel-held territory and the rest of Ukraine, these are very mm. they're, they're fuzzily demarcated. And there's a lot of um, discretion which rests with, you know, local commanders and local people on the ground. And, you know, you don't, ordering, taking a missile launcher across the border from Russia into, into that bit of Ukraine, you know, you really, really don't need an order from the Kremlin to do that. Mm. Mary Dijewski, it's been good to talk to you. I, I do wonder whether anyone is ever really going to find out who, who gave the order and who pushed the button. No, well, I think the, the one thing that I would say is that everybody's been very concerned, and you understand why, to fix the blame. But, you know, shooting a civilian airliner out of the sky from heavily disputed territory in a very chaotic mini-war, you know, this is a mistake and a tragedy. It's not that somebody was setting, setting out to take down the civilian plane. You know, that's not what this is about. Mary Dijewski from The Independent, good to speak to you. Thanks for joining us today. Still to come, Yemen's forgotten war. We hear from Channel 4's Krishnan Guru Murthy, who's been to the country. Is Saudi Arabia targeting civilians using British-made bombs? The head of the army has a big idea to bring the service bang up to date. General Sir Nicholas Carter plans to make some big changes and spoke about them when he addressed the think tank Chatham House earlier this week. Christopher Lee, um, you were in the audience. What's his plan? OK, um, you will see the definition of it in January 2017, 20, in a couple of months' time. Um, you start with having to have a big idea. When he was, uh, when he was a southern commander in Kandahar, um, he found that the, the army was in a bad state. So you've got to have a big idea. You've got to understand what your purpose is and what you're going to be doing. He gets into the job of uh, chief of the general staff two years ago, and he'd been doing staff work before that, fortunately. And he said to everybody, look, the army is too conservative. Um, it doesn't like what? It doesn't like change. Mm. It really doesn't like change. Uh, I mean, it doesn't go as far as the, the sort of old idea that... You so what, what changes does he want? Well, he wants... Well, you start... It's too conservative. Therefore, being too conservative, it affects Manning. 
Therefore, the army could become irrelevant, and he believed that the army was on its way of becoming irrelevant, and it wasn't actually doing the job that it was, in fact, having to do. So, with a new integrated action programme, which includes a new brigade, for example, 7-7 Brigade, he's brought that in, uh, and that looks at non-kinetic warfare. In other words, we don't go off with with guns and fight your war. Um, you've got to have uh, specialised infantry brigades. You've got a single headquarters of the army now at Andover, uh, actually in one building. You've got a whole board which looks across the army, everything's doing, of 700 people from colonel up to general. You have questions for generals. Are you doing the right job, general? It's almost as if you've got to relearn your own job. You've got to get the idea of, uh, he calls it, ma- uh, value-based leadership. So you can say at any level... Mm. Tell me how you, how you're getting on with what you're doing, and can we trust you? And therefore, mm. you come right down, and he's introduced a new rank. For uh, example, and briefly, what a minute, a command a, a command sergeant major. He is a man that can actually say to the army board, "Excuse me, uh, general." but I don't think you understand how the guys on the ground are understanding this, and it could be done better. What's now, the time scale? Uh, January. We start in well. It's starting now, but you, it starts in January. Everybody will be able to read it. They'll put out aid memoir to, to anybody who wants to read about it. I think one of the saddest things is that one of the weaknesses is the is the MOD uh, public relations system. It's too comfortable, mm. and what it's not doing is taking the biggest change I've seen in the army for forty years, and it's not selling it to the public. And at the end of the day, it's the public's going to have to pay for it. Now, is Saudi Arabia using British-made weapons to deliberately bomb civilian targets in Yemen? Saudi forces are supporting the Yemeni government against Houthi rebels who are in control of the capital, Sana'a. Britain is supplying weapons to the Saudi force, which is accused of bombing civilian targets, including medical facilities, a port, food warehouses and food factories. Well, now, a Channel 4 documentary says people are starving as a result. Here's a clip from the programme. The port managers tell me they believe Saudi coalition warplanes carried out the strikes, possibly using British and American weapons. We've shown these images to weapons experts who say they could be part of either Paveway 4 or Paveway 2 guided bombs made in Britain and America, respectively. Britain's understood to have sold more than 2,000 paveway falls to Saudi Arabia last summer. And Human Rights Watch have documented their use on food warehouses nearby. Britain has sold more than £3 billion worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia since it began bombing Yemen. Well, earlier I spoke to Christian Gurumurthy, who presents the programme which is called Unreported World, Yemen's Forgotten War. Well, it's very difficult to get into Yemen, into the Houthi side, and it took us quite a long time to get permission, but you fly in via Jordan into Sana'a, which is the capital of Yemen, which is now under rebel control, uh, and we had to ask permission for everywhere we wanted to travel, so it wasn't unfettered access to the country, but we travelled south to the port of Hodeida, which is where the vast majority of Yemen's imports come in, and remember this is a country almost entirely dependent on imported food, Uh, and we also went to the refugee camps, or IDP camps, uh, around the middle of the country, around Hadja and Abs, which uh, you'll remember in the last few weeks, one of the 
uh, MSF hospitals that was bombed recently was in ABS. So those were the main areas that we were travelling around, but we spent quite a lot of time in the hospital, the children's hospital in Sanaa. And some awful scenes that you saw. You also uncovered what you've been told is evidence that Saudi Arabia broke international humanitarian law. What did you see? Many organisations, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Oxfam, believe that Saudi Arabia is breaking international humanitarian law in their bombing campaign. Now, Saudi Arabia points out that they were invited in by the legitimate president of Yemen, uh, President Hadi, to, to restore him to power after the Houthis were, uh, you know, took over and, and pushed him out. Um, but the allegation is basically that Saudi Arabia is bombing civilian targets. And we certainly saw evidence that civilian things had been bombed, whether they were food factories, warehouses, the cranes that are used to unload ships in Hodeida, uh, bridges. Uh, now, a lot of that infrastructure can obviously be argued as useful to military use as well. And the Saudis say, even in Hodeida, that they weren't bombing the port, the civilian port, they were bombing a military base. Um, so these are hotly disputed claims, uh, but the fact is regardless of what the intention was that the civilian infrastructure and the food supply has been massively disrupted and that's what's causing starvation on a massive scale just how how bad was it what did you see it's it's really alarming i mean you know a huge number of people are now totally dependent on food aid hundreds of thousands of children are living on the edge and it's the children who get affected first because uh, when when adults are malnourished it's the mothers who can't breastfeed and so it's the babies that you see coming into the hospital first of all and they're the ones who are literally starving to death uh, and and it's a it's a problem on a massive scale you go into the refugee camps which are supposed to be organized by the UN and are supported by international charities but they just don't have enough food and there are children starving to death in these camps um, which do get some food supplies but just not nearly enough and you go and talk to the UN and they say we have appealed to the international community for a fund to pay for aid for these people, and we've only had it matched up to about 20%. So the world is just not meeting the needs of Yemen's people at the moment, and that's for a variety of different reasons. When can we see this? It's on Channel 4, on, on, on old-fashioned linear television at 7.30 on Friday night, but it's also available online um, forever, effectively, hmm. uh, and on the Channel 4 YouTube channel. That was Christian Guru Murthy. And the Foreign Office has issued a statement to us and they say, we are aware of reports of alleged violations of international humanitarian law by actors in the conflict and take these very seriously. It's important that all sides conduct thorough and conclusive investigations into incidents where it's alleged that IHL has been breached. The MOD monitors incidents of alleged IHL violations using available information, which in turn informs our analysis of IHL compliance in Yemen. Uh, available information being the, the key kind of phrase there, Christopher. Yeah, listen. What information is available? Listen, the, the uh, British officers are in Saudi Arabian headquarters. British weapons are being used in this. The Foreign Office was going to back something which was put up by the Dutch as a, a UN inquiry to what's going on in broader terms. Boris Johnson, the Foreign uh, Secretary, has just, at the beginning of this week, vetoed that inquiry. And the I reasoning? Think it tells you and what is the reason for I that? I think I've probably just given it to you. Uh, but what British, the, what's the British, official British, reason, British, whatever else you may there think? There isn't one. Uh, oh, I was, Humphrey would say it's a very courageous decision. Hmm. In other words, too soon. 
It's uh, party conference season and this week it was the turn of Labour in Liverpool. So what did they have to say about defence? Quite a lot it seems, but according to our reporter James Hurst, it wasn't said quite in the way they wanted. Well, it certainly didn't go to plan. There was supposed to be no repeat of the chaos at the end of last year's conference when Jeremy Corbyn said he would never push the nuclear button if he was Prime Minister. This year, his close allies, Shadow Defence Secretary Clive Lewis and the Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury, took to the conference stage with a two-pronged attempt to draw a line under divisions over Trident renewal. The security of our country is the first duty of any government, and it demands nothing less than the most rigorous of examination and debate. Friends, we know that nuclear weapons are one of those issues. As you know... I am sceptical about Trident renewal, as are many here in this room. The future Labour government will not just revive talks on multilateral nuclear disarmament among the world's great powers. We will make the success of those talks the test of the success of our foreign policy. It wasn't what they said that caused the chaos. It was what Clive Lewis didn't say. He was apparently furious after having a line removed from his speech by a spin doctor. He went ballistic, one source told me, because Jeremy Corbyn's top adviser deleted an appeal to park the Trident question from the autocue script just moments before the speech. On balance, I don't think this was a row between Mr Lewis and Mr Corbyn, but difficulty between a politician and an adviser. It does seem Mr Corbyn accepts his Shadow Defence Secretary's argument that Trident policy isn't a battle worth having at the moment because Parliament has just voted for renewal. Of course I know what the party policy is and of course I understand the decision that was taken. Does it mean there are people in the party who uh, have a moral objection to nuclear weapons? Yes, there are. Does it mean the debate's been parked? I suspect not. Mr Corbyn is still going to speak out against Trident renewal, so you will have a leader speaking out against his own party policy. But this whole rail did distract us from perhaps a more interesting section in Clive Lewis' speech on NATO. So, of course, a Labour government would fulfil our international commitments, including those under Article 5. But let's be clear, that means diplomatic as well as military obligations. We cannot have one without the other, and nor should we. Every Labour government since Attlee has met NATO's spending target of at least 2% of GDP every single year. And I can confirm today that the next Labour government will do the same, including our UN and peacekeeping obligations. That first commitment to Article 5 was meant to reassure people worried by things that Jeremy Corbyn said in the leadership debates. In one, he repeatedly refused to commit to give military assistance to a NATO ally in need. The commitment from Clive Lewis to NATO's 2% spending is the first time we've had such a pledge from this party. And it somewhat ties Jeremy Corbyn's hands were he to become the next Prime Minister. If Labour did at that point decide to abandon Trident, most, if not all, of the money would have to go back into conventional defence, which would give Mr Corbyn's proposed Minister for Peace some big resources for peacekeeping operations. That was James Hurst reporting from the Labour conference in Liverpool. Um, Christopher, before we finish this week, we should mention that as we speak, uh, lying in state in Jerusalem is Shimon Peres, former Israeli president. 
Shimon Prez is one of the founding fathers. He was there at the beginning of 1947-1948. And he is regarded with mixed feelings by a lot of people. A lot of people say he wasn't so particularly wonderful in what he did. But he was there. He was a hawk. He was the man that started... Uh, Israel's nuclear weapons program. Mm. But uh, in the last 20, 25 years of his life, he was the peacemaker. Tell us, those that have lauded him have said what, and those who are not so uh, big fans have said what? Um, those who are not big fans have said that he he started the, the nuclear program, also that he was very much along with Sharon in promoting the idea of moving into the occupied territories and building houses, building cities, building towns there. Mm. Um, but it was the fact the last 20-odd years, 25 years, where he really did help. He was a key man in persuading Clinton to push for the Oslo peace agreement, ideally between Palestine and Israel. It didn't work, but he didn't stop, and that's where it is. And he was a founding father, and when you get to 90-odd, much can be forgiven. Uh, and uh, the bits that are remembered, I think, are worth remembering. How, how do you Great remember man. him? You met, you met him, didn't you? He, no, he knew my grandfather. Ah. Uh, but uh, no, I hardly met my grandfather, mind you. <laughs> but that- uh, a great man, great man. That is all we have time for today. My thanks to all our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. We're back same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.